This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, Welcome to Namaste, Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of comedy, self-help and business collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and today's episode is called I'm Not Disabled, I'm Rosie. The subject of imposter syndrome, or feeling like a fraud, comes up a lot on this podcast. But if there's one thing you learn when you get to know my guest today a bit, it's that her confidence is not an act. To quote Mark Twain, all you need in this life is ignorance and confidence, and then success is sure. And my guest today is definitely not ignorant, but she is rather successful. I don't know what she'd have to say about any of this, but things that allegedly boost your confidence include wearing a Superman t-shirt, spraying on perfume and wearing black. None of those things are mutually exclusive, I guess, so you can fill your boots. According to psychologists, self-esteem and confidence are actually different. So self-esteem is our opinion about ourselves, how much we like ourselves, and confidence is how sure we are of this judgment. So while self-esteem is an internal feeling, confidence is its outer manifestation. Close, but different. There are four things which affect our levels of self-esteem, which psychologists call the four Ps. Catchy. The first one is perspiration, how we respond to fear and anxiety. Second one is peers, not Piers Morgan, but how we compare ourselves with others. Third one is parents. And the fourth one is performance, whether that's academic or career. Not sexual, I don't think. Or maybe. Uh, Anyway, moving on. In my case, uh, the fifth P is picking the wrong people to get into relationships with, which really does affect your self-esteem. I fell over running, so I can't even say it was like drinking too many margaritas on the first night the pub's open, so yeah. That's my guest today, comedian, actor, writer and now author, Rosie Jones. If self-esteem comes from your parents, then it makes sense that Rosie's is in good shape because her mum and dad, as you'll hear in the podcast, are pretty awesome. I said, I'm interviewing Rosie for the podcast. He was like, oh my God, she's a really famous mum. You're really lucky. And, um, and, he, and I said, well, it's only an hour on Zoom. And he went, yeah, but it might take two hours. So there you go. <laughs> what was that a burn on you? What was it a burn on how slow I talk? 
Rosie and I started out in comedy within a few months of each other and her rise to fame since then has been meteoric. Her career highlights so far include performing to 9,000 people at Wembley for Comic Relief, numerous panel show appearances, sell-out shows at the Edinburgh Fringe, her recent Channel 4 show, Trip Hazard, and the publication of her first children's book, The Amazing Edie Eckhart. Rosie and I talked about mother love, writing, life lessons in lockdown, the best time to have a baby, confidence, sex, sexuality and underestimating her at your peril but I started by asking her about whether speaking slowly is her way of having to write fewer jokes. on free jokes and that's it I'm done you see you say that but annoyingly there are some people because you and I started out at the same ish time I think you probably started out a bit later than me maybe when did you start Rosie 2016 so yeah that is maybe six I started at the very end of 2015 so it's very similar so we're like contemporaries and there are some yeah. people who started out when you and I started and I'm like, mm, you're doing really well, but I'm a bit irritated by that. And then with you, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but you're really good at it. So I can't really, I can't hate you as much as I'd like to because you're funny. So that's, not, but you do seem, Rosie, I was thinking, um, well, just say this for the listeners, that Rosie did turn up a little bit late because of confusion about time that we were doing it. And I was like, oh, she's just too famous now. She can't be asked. She's just like, do you know what? I was, no! on Lorraine, I was on Lorraine on Tuesday. I don't need Callie Beaton. <laughs> no, honestly, I was sat here eating a banana. And Callie emailed me and was like, are you ready? And I was like, yes, I'm ready. And and she got the timing completely wrong. So I'm not successful. I'm very shit. At my schedule. <laughs> well, you'll have an executive assistant probably by Christmas, and you won't need to worry, Rosie. They'll be running around getting you a latte. But you seem to have had, so most of us have had a shit year if we're comedians, and you've managed to knock out like TV shows, uh, podcasts, and a bloody book now. And I'm so I need to know have you got all the COVID winning for everybody? Have you just taken it for everyone's share and gone, yeah? I love that. Yeah, I think when COVID hit, a lot of TV people had a lot of time at home and they all went a little bit to Lally and they were like, I tell you who we need 
that really little loud disabled lesbian get her on everything <laughs> and you know what I bloody embraced it <laughs> and yeah it's it's been really weird I mean like everyone, I there was a, a day in March 2020 where literally overnight my diary cleared. I was meant to go to Melbourne for five weeks. And I was meant to present the Paralympics in Tokyo. So, yeah, it was really shit. But luckily, other things came up and I already had my book deal so yeah like everyone covid's been weird and shit and rubbish but i need to acknowledge how fortunate i am that i've managed to keep working and hopefully more people will want more of that little loud disabled lesbian. You can't hopefully. get enough of a little loud disabled lesbian. I'm even not in hard times, but in tough times, come on. Some people are just going to need a slice of Victoria sponge. Other people are saying I need a disabled northern Joanna Lumley. And that's where you come in, isn't it? I'll be like, ding dong, here I am. <laughs> and you've got, you, you ended up moving. I want to talk about your book because it was, um, I'll, we'll come back to it in a second. Because it was, I thought what you had on the front cover, it's very sweet, the, the tagline. Well, I'll say now it's the amazing E.D. Eckhart. And it, the sub sort of line is being a little wobbly won't stop her. And you've got on your pinned tweet about it. I wish I could have had her in my life when I was a little girl, which I thought was, I'm not used to seeing sweet, sincere Rosie. I'm used to seeing Rosie that gets up on a stage in a cute little flowery dress and tights and then says something abominably dark. And everyone's like, oh, <laughs> And then you get away with it. So this is a whole new year, this book. You know what, Kelly? I got many layers. Granted, a lot of those layers are still upset with tits and women. But you know what? I can when I really want to be. 
I can be very adorable. <laughs> well, you're always adorable, even when you're saying, I mean, I heard you with Richard Herring talking about shagging dead cows and sheep, and I thought she still sounds kind of cute and plausible. And um, fair play for selling that. But before we get into your book, did you, because everyone said they were going to write a book in lockdown, and you actually did write a book. Um, but did you, you went back to live with your mum and dad, didn't you, when, when this all hit? So how was that? Um, it, I mean, I'm gonna be bloody serious for a bit. And I live in London and I love London and I live with friends and I am so independent. But COVID hit and lockdown. And for the first time, I felt vulnerable because you know me, it's very much who I am to go out there and be like, hello, I'm Rosie, I'm disabled, but don't you fucking dare feel sorry for me. But we hit a point where, like, little things, like when I get around, I touch everything to keep steady. And I thought, there's no way I can safely go shopping and buy food during COVID times. And cause there was no gigging, I didn't need to be in London. So I went back to my mum and dad and they are so amazing. But I did go reluctantly because it was almost like I was accepting I needed help but they were brilliant and I think for the first time in my adulthood I stayed at home and I really got to know my parents as adults and I feel like that brought us stronger and I understand them more and yet it was such a lovely yeah, we had together, and yeah, they just are so proud of they left me to it, and I commanded the dining room <laughs> as my office, and I'd have a very strict 
daily routine and I would write a certain amount of words every day and every two hours my dad would bring me a cup of tea and a slice of cake. <laughs> so really I had a cracking, cracking lockdown. Is this back at your own place now? Yeah, I'm back in London. I came back um, about five weeks ago, but my mum is so lovely. She texts me every day going... Just to make sure you're not coming back. Dana, <laughs> even if COVID happens, <laughs> again do not move <laughs> and did you because your mum and dad um you're older now than you were when your mum and dad had you right yeah yeah so they were 26 when they had me and I'm 30 and for me it's very interesting because both my nanas and my mum were both, all three were 26 when they had a child. So I just thought that I would have a baby at 26. And I got to that magic age and I was not pregnant. I wasn't married. I didn't have my own house and I didn't have a partner. And it made me go, what? (laughs) This was always... The plan, but after then, when I realised that it might be the plan, but it was never my plan, it was quite liberating. And I do want to get married. I do want children eventually. But I think moving older than the magic age of 26 is quite liberating. And I'm just allowing myself to follow my own plan and my own dreams. And is it, when did you, were you 26 when you started comedy or 25? 
Twenty-six. So that was your baby. You had that. Your baby was stand-up. You gave birth to stand-up, and then you'll have your baby later. So you just had a different kind of a child. What do you think about that for a Namaste motherfucking revelation? I have never thought about that, but that is exactly what it was, and I think it was that magic age of 26, something inside me when you know what, I'm gonna give birth to stop. And so far, it's been a lovely little baby. It's not a bad looking baby. It's got some talent. It's learned to speak. It's on the telly. I think I've seen worse, but you know, sometimes your friends have a baby and you're like, oh, I don't know how to tell you, but that's not the one I'd have chosen. And do you, um, so you can, I mean, nowadays you'll be able to pick any woman you want, Rosie, to settle down with and have a baby. So you can, you'll probably, Kim Kardashian's available now, I hear. So you could go and have another little Kardashian baby, couldn't you? Who are you after? Are you seeing anyone at the moment? No, I am single because my little baby stand up. Baby Stan, we can call it. Little baby Stan. Stan. Oh, I love him, but he is very demanding. Yeah, I bet. Um, And it's, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I've never been in a relationship and I spent a lot of my 20s going, shit, what am I doing wrong? How do I get a girlfriend? What can I do? And actually, right now, I've hit a certain piece with it that I am focusing on my career. I just bloody bought my first flat and I'm at a stage of pure, pure happiness that I think when when Kim comes along, <laughs> when a g- really lovely, great girl comes into my life, brilliant, but I don't need that. Like, I'm not on dating app. I'm not searching all day, every day, because right now I need to put my job and my career first because 
I love it. I really love it. Do you think you love it more because you were off, because you and I both started off camera and then made the switch to performing only? It took me 30 years to do that and it took you about seven minutes. But how long did you work um, behind the scenes? Was it like five or six years? (laughs) Yes, six years. And I bet you found it too. I would often literally be behind the camera so that on-screen talent was three feet away and I would look at them and i go, how you want to do that? Did you always think it should be me? I should be, because you used to write, you, I mean, you're a brilliant writer, Rosie, and I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass. Mm. Anyone who follows you on Twitter will see how you are just naturally, I mean, funny bones is a sort of slightly old school way to say it, but you, you and Maisie Adam are the two acts I've seen in the last few years. And I've worked in comedy my whole career where I'm like, yeah, both of you just have whatever it is it's effortlessly you both had it from gig one but do you so when you were seeing people deliver your gag so we we know you're a great writer and I'm sure that was clear always but I guess it was for you was it the sort of like I I don't know if I can deliver it like it's going to be as in as in this was it the pace of your speech where you thought maybe this won't work for timing of comedy What, what would have held you back for six years that's exactly, exactly what it is. And actually, that was my lightful moment of, for six years, I thought, I can't be on camera because of how I speak. I knew that my friends and family understood me, but I did not think for one second that the general public would have the patience to sit there and listen to me and I would love writing for other people. I still love writing now. Um, but I did feel bitter and there was a part of me that thought that shall be me. So what made you think you could, because you've got a way, and I know this has been much written about with you, Rosie, but that you, so there is the risk people will get to your punchline before you, unless your punchline is very clever and unexpected. So joking as we were about, you have to write less jokes because you deliver them more slowly, but my God, you've got to go through a twist and turn to double bluff the audience, right? So what made you know you, what, what made you think, well, actually I can do this, that the speed of my speech won't hold me back? Basically, I was writing more and more and I just had that light bulb moment. Well, I just make sure they don't expect that twist. And I thought, 
I think I've got something here. I really thought maybe it's something, but I wasn't sure. So in secret, I started stand-up and it worked. And very quickly, I learned that it was all in the writing and all in the editing for me. And I learned that literally every syllable matters. So I would write out my jokes and I would go through it and I would think, right, that word is three syllables. How could I say that? And it's the thing of, don't say fantastic, because at fantastic, the audience are already going tip. <laughs> <laughs> But if I say, great, I got it out before they know what I'm going to say. But when you, so you're creating something, and I guess you understand the anatomy of a joke because you work behind the scenes. So you had the kind of writing brain and you knew what worked. So you had the advantage that you'd kind of been to comedy school by doing those jobs. But then when you see you on, um, I've loved your trip hazard um, on Channel 4. Anyone who hasn't seen it by the time this goes out, definitely watch it. I've also loved it because um, our mutual friend, Rachel Stubbings, I love her cameo role. She's just brilliant. So I always love seeing her. But in that, again, you're a very specific writer and you have to pedal very hard to get the writing right to deliver it. But then when you're doing your ad libs on Trip Hazard, you are really fucking funny. And it struck me that you, so you're not editing or curating that and quite a broad range of people who might or might not understand anything about, they might or might not have ever met anyone with your disability. They maybe haven't even met very many people at all, some of them, um, and (laughs) able-bodied or not. But they do all sort of take you, they all take you in good spirit and laugh, and it's really funny. So you you are also a brilliant ad-libber, and that doesn't tie into that strategy. Well, it does. It does. Because I... Speak slowly, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with the speed of my brain. Mm-hmm. And literally, as I am speaking now, there's a part of my brain going, Do I need that word? Would it make sense without that word and that phrase? So I would argue that even in my ad-libs, I forgot more time to edit. 
So you've basically just translated uh, a disability into a superpower. You're like, no, actually, I've got two. I've got two things going on, and I've got the advantage of having time to think what it is. Fast talkers like me, it's out of our mouths, and we're like, oh, that's not what I meant to say. Namaste, motherfuckers. In terms of your confidence, so it's really interesting doing this podcast which is about as you know sort of it's kind of debunking the myths of people and looking at the real shit that goes on because I always think there's the version of ourselves that we show people and then there's what's really going on inside and it takes a lot of effort to make things look effortless for all of us I think but one of the things that strikes me about you I know you're a bit off stage I've seen you loads on stage and on camera and you do seem to have a real confidence and is that is that real or is, yeah, what, what sort of props up your confidence and how robust is it? My fat brain is working now, not to edit, but to go, don't be arrogant, don't. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm a confident person. It's Definitely not an act, but I do think that confidence has grown because I need to be confident because all through my life, when I meet new people, because of my disability, they can be nervous and awkward. And if I'm back, their awkwardness with a similar awkwardness, if they were like, can you do this? And I said, oh, um, I think I can do this. I would get nothing done. So I need to go into every situation when someone goes, can you do this? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can. So it's a response to being patronised or underestimated, is it? So it's to get, because I guess it works, it certainly works on stage that you walk on and within your first two words, everyone's like, oh, she's got this, this is fine, we can relax. So it really helps you as a comedian. But did it, was it in response to being patronised or underestimated, do you think? So it was kind of, fuck you, I'm fine. Yeah. 100%, 100%, all my life, I've had to match people patronising me with their confidence. And as well as that, I think being disabled makes you aware of what you can't do so therefore it makes you equally aware of what you can do so it makes me for sure 
go, right, I can't do that, but I absolutely know that I can nail that. So how would they do that? So in a way, your disability and growing up with people being awkward and patronising you has made you articulate what it is you can do and has actually bolstered your your need for confidence and your real confidence. But do you think that's also a few people on the podcast so far have talked about, if you think about upbringing, Arthur Smith was talking about um, unconditional parental love. So if you've got real, and I know your podcast, Daddy, look at me, sort of jokingly looks at the fact that, you know, our daddies didn't love us and that's why we're all desperate for attention, as if. But um, it, do you think the fact, it sounds as if, I obviously don't know your mum and dad, but they do sound kind of awesome. And do you think because they loved you unconditionally and they sort of did believe in you, right? They let you be independent. They didn't wrap you in cotton wool. Did that help your confidence? Yes. Yes. And... I wholeheartedly believe that and I feel like I grew up in a house where I could be whoever I wanted to be and they would support me. But if my parents were here right now, they would say, you're wrong. Because apparently I was always so confident growing up that I would always say, I'm doing that. I'm going there. Um, I decided to move to London and they just said yes. They said yes and they let me crack on with it. How old were you when you moved? So I went to uni in Huddersfield which is about two hours from my hometown. And then I did a big move to London when I was 21. So I was still, in hindsight, really young. Yeah. But at the time, you're like, well, I graduated, time for the big talk. And when I came down to London, I um, remember I took the train down to London with my mum and dad. And we didn't speak for the entire time. And years later, my mum said, I couldn't speak because all that would come out of my mouth was, don't do it. Down me to London, come back. 
You don't need to go so far. And I said, if you had said that, I would have said, okay, yeah, I'll come back. Really? Because um, that is, yeah. to me, that is unconditional mother love, what you've just described. So for your mum to be able to sit with you, knowing all her mum instincts, but I want to wrap up my kid in cotton wool and bring her home, but I'm going to just let her go on her journey. They say you give your kids yeah. roots and you give them wings. And she was giving you wings and she was letting you go. And that's an incredibly, that's, that is an incredible parental role to have had, I would say. Yeah, they are amazing. And I know they worry and they think about me a lot, but they never put it on me. They just support me and they say yes and they let me do whatever I want to do. I'm going to make a mental note when I next go on a train journey with my son, who's um, 23 and still lives at home. I won't be saying anything because I'll be thinking, please just let him get off the train and move into his own bloody flat. So for me, it'll be different. I'll be taciturn, but for different. No, Jake will listen to this because he loves you. So no, Jake, I'm only joking, half joking. Um, and did you, so your book, um, the was it a different process? So writing the amazing E.D. Eckhart, um, was that, Obviously, like this time you don't need to worry about delivery, right? I mean, you'll be doing book readings, but it's um, did it did it liberate you in terms of language? You could use as many syllables as you liked, apart from I guess it's for young kids. Yeah, it was, but then you're still using that editing technique, and actually for children, really, you're. Probably editing more because I was very aware that it's for 11-year-olds. They're not bothered about pages and pages of description or exposition, so I was still using the editing technique, but in a different way, because I think disabled or not, stand up or writer, it is all about the editing because you should never ever use more words you need to get your point across. Yeah, everybody knows that, but not anyone, not everyone acts on that. And I guess you've had to learn to do that the kind of hard way in terms of delivery on stage. And is this the book, Rosie, that you'd have liked to read when you were 11 year old girl? Yeah, 100%. I, I read and read and read all the time when I was little. 
and I loved it. But in hindsight, I never saw anybody like me on TV or in books. And that had a negative effect. It's really demoralising. It makes you think, am I wrong? Am I valid? Is my story worth telling? And it was because I'm disabled, but I'm just like every other person. So, yeah, when I was writing it, I definitely had... 12-year-old Rosie in mind and I really know that if Edie and if the book was around when I was little it would have helped me so much. So you're going to inspire and give confidence, I guess, to lots of um, disabled and able-bodied kids in terms of understanding. I guess it's about, I always say this about my son, you know, who's neurodiverse and difference doesn't mean less. And as people in the world, especially with our worlds having got so small in lockdown, it's really important we walk towards discomfort. If there's someone you're like, I don't really understand what's up with you, or I don't really know what I should say to you, to walk towards the conversation, not away from it. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people said, is your book for disabled children? And it is, it is for disabled children to read and to go, she's like me, how I do that. But more than that, it's for able-bodied children to read it and go, oh, oh, they're fine. That just like me. So really, it's absolutely for everyone because I just want to say, just because someone's wobbly or a little bit different, it doesn't stop them from being brilliant. I wasn't expecting to get so many goosebumps talking to you, Rosie Jones, but I keep getting them today. You've had me almost in tears a couple of times, but you won't be able to see because my glasses. What would you pick as your namaste motherfucking moment? That, that's an interesting one, because I feel like we're taught a lot about 
several moments like when I realised that I could use my slow speech to my advantage. That felt like a massive moment. But I'm actually going to say probably the first night I kissed a woman. So it was a very conscious decision. I was 26. I was living in London and I went out with my best friend who's a gay guy and we went to a gay bar and I said to him, Nick, I'm gay. And he went, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and I said, I'm, I'm gonna kiss a girl tonight. Um, and he was like, okay, what's your type? And I was like, little, femme, brunette, yes, please. And Nick was like, what, her? And we <laughs> both looked at the bar and there was a little femme brunette and I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. And I think I was filled with so much confidence from telling my best friend Nick and him being so supportive. It was like a movie, like I went up to her, got her a drink, we danced, then we had a lovely snog all night and I mean, I was so drunk at that point. My phone had died. She wrote her number on my hand and I woke up and half the numbers. Oh, Rosie. Yeah, so like, I don't even know her name and like, but... To me, in hindsight, that made that night even better because we didn't have a maybe awkward date or it didn't fizzle out in my head. She can always be that one girl who ignited my gay journey and from that point I think I st 
Yeah, I come in out to more and more people. I started comedy. I started dressing differently. I started feeling more confident in who I was. And I think it was that moment in that club just a lovely kiss with a very fit girl. <laughs> well, if she's listening to this podcast when it goes out, Rosie, and if you end up getting married, I expect to be at the top table, all right? The man must stay fucking at top table. So um, what I'm loads, um, not loads, I'm wary of asking you this because I know what your jokes are like and we're suddenly going to go into a whole X-rated band category on Apple Podcasts, but your favourite joke, what is it? Um, that is so tricky for me because... Yeah, I'm going to be arrogant and I'm going to choose one of my own. I would expect nothing less. I think it's, it's interesting because it's a joke I don't do anymore. And it's a joke that is literally on my Wikipedia page. And it was my introduction joke. It's, I'd most said it about a thousand times. <laughs> and it's Hello, I'm Rosie, and as you can tell from my voice, I suffer from being northern. <laughs> and I've heard you, I've heard you do that gag. And I and that is again such a it sums up, doesn't it? What you talked about is just lead them down one path and give them something else. Yeah, and then it being boring and it thinking about it from an editing point of view, you need every word and every word leads them down a certain path and then you get to northern and you go, ha ha, got you. Uh, but on another level, that just reminds me about starting comedy. I knew that when I said that joke, I was home and you got your first laugh and it made me go, I'm off, I'm ready, I'm ready to tell some jokes. You had them at that point. Yeah, yeah, and it was just the boost 
they're needed. Was it hard to say goodbye to that joke? Because when we've got openers like that, that are absolutely fail safe or as near to fail safe as any of us have, that must have been hard to lay it to rest, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. And I think I think I got to a point when I would say, hello, I'm Rosie. And as you can tell from my voice, and people would laugh. And it made me go, too many people know it. Yeah. And it made me go, I'm losing control. Yeah, yeah. And I don't have them where I want them. So actually, although I was sad, it made me go, no, I got to up myself, I got to be better. And yeah, it was sad, but it was time. It was time. And you've given loads of really, really good advice. And your whole book, I guess, is in a way implicit advice for um, for little girls, little boys, um, people who don't identify as girls or boys to realise that there's a lot more to the world than people might have assumed when you were growing up. Um, so we've had loads of lovely advice in this episode. But if there was just one bit of life advice you could give to anyone listening, what would it be? Never apologise. And I need to say, if you do something wrong, absolutely bloody say sorry, quick. But actually, I've spent a lot of my life apologising. Like when I fall over, I say, oh, shit, I'm sorry. If I'm in a restaurant and I can't use a certain glass, I will say, sorry, have you got a tumbler, please? And... Now I got to an age where I think, why am I apologising for something that I can't help? Mm -hmm. And I think letting go of that and letting go of the fact I... My disability does make my life hard. It's society and people's view on disability that makes my life hard. And therefore, I personally have nothing to apologise for. It's really been an eye-opener and a huge weight 
off my shoulders. So yeah, never ever apologize for being that was the outstanding rosie jones every episode i pick a thing inspired by my guest that i am going to try this week i've decided finally to read a book i've been meaning to read for about 10 years since it first came out and it is the reality slap by russ harris The book looks at life's setbacks and challenges as being like reality continually slapping you in the face. And crucially, it helps you work out what you can do to thrive even after serious setbacks. It says here, the reality slap is the essential guide to finding happiness and fulfillment. This powerful book might just change your life. Bold claims. Now, info on the book is in the show notes, as well as all the good stuff about where you can find Rosie and how you can order her brand new brilliant children's book. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and was produced by Mike Hansen and Karu Shadami for Pod People Productions. Music by Jake Yap. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show, not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, but because it helps other people find the show. We'll be back in your feed next Monday when I'll be talking to comedian, satirist, writer and presenter Matt Ford. I left literally the moment he was announced as leader. I emailed the Labour Party and cancelled my membership. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers.